This the star-spangled banner, O long made wave, over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 70 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode, we will be discussing whether the United States of America national anthem is racist. Here is Joy Behar of The View explaining why she thinks it is. The national anthem does not appeal to black America for very good reason. Come up with a new anthem. I think the point was that it's too... But it never appealed to... I'll read you the lines that you were talking about. No, I know. No I don't re- think this our is, anthem no is refuge, No refuge could save the hireling, the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. In other words, don't be escaping because you're going to be killed. Kill and the well, star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. They don't... Con- black people do not consider that in themselves. I don't think they that's don't the like answer. This anthem, Francis Scott do I. was a racist. Like he, it's, you well, know, he owned slaves. That's how he got wealthy. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, so in order for black people to make their point, listen, this is a systemic uh, racism going on in this country, and this anthem does not reflect our values. So we want to say this about our group, and this is what they're doing. So before we get into that, let's look at the history, Jay. So in 1836, Francis Kotsky said, Then, in that hour of deliverance and joyful triumph, the heart spoke, and does not such a country and such defenders of their country deserve a song. And there the star-spangled banner was burnt. So, is there more? Tell us, what is the history of the National Anthem, Dre? That was Francis Scott Key talking about the National Anthem in 1836. But what actually happened is that it was written roughly 20 years before. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Maryland. And at this time in the nation's history, we were in the middle of the War of 1812. That was the second war that we had with the British Empire. So I think that when we're talking about the history of the anthem, when we're talking about whether or not it's racist, context and historical context is important. The British gave the Americans an ultimatum to surrender 
or they would level Fort McHenry. This war had been going on at this point for, what, two years? Or however long it's been. And there were casualties on both sides. And there were prisoners on both sides. Initially, there was an agreement for an exchange of prisoners between the two parties at Fort McHenry. But the British admiral laid down that ultimatum. The American troops, of course, did not agree to the ultimatum. And so what you have now is a fight. The Empire pretty much threw all they could at Fort McHenry, trying to level it, trying to capture it, because if they could capture Fort McHenry, Maryland was pretty much theirs. And those men fought overnight to keep that flag flying, to keep the British at bay. The following morning, the Royal Navy brought all of their arsenal, their weaponry, their ships. They were going to attack. They positioned everything on September 12th. On September 13th, they attacked. And the morning of September 14th, Francis Scott Key awoke because he could hear all of the gunfire and the cannon fire overnight. He awoke to see that the flag was still flying. Because if the flag wasn't, that would mean that the American forces were defeated and that they had captured Fort McHenry. When he woke up that morning and he saw that the flag was still waving, he wrote the poem. When he wrote it, it was a poem. It wasn't necessarily the anthem at that particular time. When he wrote the poem, he had titled it The Defense of Fort McHenry. He published it a few days later on September 20th. Sometime later, maybe weeks or so later, maybe months later, his brother-in-law put it to music. When his brother-in-law put it to music, it became what we know as the Star-Spangled Banner. It didn't become the national anthem until the 1930s. I think under Woodrow Wilson, I could be wrong on the president there, but under Woodrow Wilson. Because there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of controversy, and other people felt like other songs should be the anthem for various reasons. But it didn't become the national anthem until the 1930s, until 1930 or so. But now, all of a sudden, in 2021, it's racist. What in the world? It's interesting that after the battle at Fort McHenry, the defense of Fort McHenry, the Treaty of Ghent was signed three months later. The Treaty of Ghent is what ended the War of 1812 between Britain and the U.S., the British Empire and the U.S. So I, in my personal opinion, don't think that the Star-Spangled Banner is racist. That's the history of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I'm sure as we go through the podcast, we'll flesh out what that means. But I think that when you listen to people like Joy Behar and all of the other women on The View talk about why it's racist or why they think it's racist, I would just like to preface and start to say that the context, the historical context is very important. What was happening at the time it was written is very important. All right, so let's dive into it, because some people do believe it is racist. Like we mentioned, Joy Behar, she did mention that. And she did read part of a stanza that she think might be racist. So what exactly are the interpretations of those stanzas? Because a lot of folks don't know, but the United States National Anthem actually has four stanzas. We only normally sing about one, mostly when we hear the National Anthem, and that's the first one, Oh Say Can You See, by the dawn's early light. What so proudly we hail at the twilight last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight. Over the ramparts we watch, 
were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. All right? Right. Most folks seem to not have any problem with that. That kind of sum up the history you just spoke about. The second stanza says, On the shore, dimly seen through the midst of the deep, where the foe hearty hosts in dread silent repose. What is that which the breeze, as it fitfully blows, now conceal, now disclose? Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam, in full glory reflect, now shines on the stream. This the star-spangled banner, O long-made wave, over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Quite honestly, I've never heard that stanza song. Oh, but it's so beautiful, isn't it? Okay, let's keep going. The third stanza seems to be the one where they have most of their problem with. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country, should leave us no more? Their blood had washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hurling and slave from the terror of flight, nor the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph dot wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. And of course, the last stanza say, Oh, thus it be ever when free men shall stand between their love homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that had made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause is just. And this be our motto, in God we trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. So why don't we start with the third stanza, since that's the one they have issues with. What is the proper historical contextual meaning of that stanza? The opponents of the national anthem have taken such a simplistic and incorrect view of this particular stanza. Just because the word slave appears in that stanza, it does not mean that they are upholding the institution of slavery or they're glorifying it. Or like Joy Behar says, they're threatening slaves and telling them, don't go running because you're going to be caught and killed. Now, I am not turning a blind eye to the fact that there was an inherent hypocrisy, an inherent failure at the beginning of the United States to fight for the principles of liberty and freedom while they still held African men and women and African American men and women enslaved and in bondage. No one's turning a blind eye to that. I'm not doing that. What I am saying is that that stanza is not addressing the slaves that were in the country at that particular point. Historical context is important. The Revolutionary War was fought because we wanted to establish our own nation with better representation. I'm sure everyone listening will remember taxation without representation is tyranny. You can't be taxed, which is exactly what was happening under the crown, among many other offenses. They were listed out in all of our founding documents as to why we wanted to separate and establish our own country. 
I think that one of the basic tenets, one of the basic elements of being an American is the value of freedom and of liberty. And again, I'm not turning a blind eye to the fact that there were slaves in this nation when the nation was established. But what I am saying is that this stanza is not inherently racist because of what it's talking about. All of the stanzas are talking about the absolute miracle that it was that Fort McHenry was not captured at that particular point of the battle. And three months later, of course, Francis Scott Key wouldn't have known that when he penned the poem, but three months later, the war ended with the Treaty of Ghent and the British were defeated. They tried to come back and finish what they couldn't finish, what was it, 50, 30 years prior in the 1770s and 1812. What is that, 40 years? Am I doing my math right? 30, 40 years? They came back and tried to finish what they couldn't finish in the Revolutionary War. The Americans fought for their independence in the Revolutionary War. We won. So in the time between those two wars, Britain did a lot of things to try and stifle or try to snuff out this fledgling nation. It was a fledgling nation. It was only, what, 30, 40 years old at the time of the War of 1812. And so they would do a lot of economic, for lack of a better expression, sanctions. They would seize ships. They would seize people who were American citizens and say, okay, you're British now, and do all of these things that were provoking a fledgling nation, trying to get on its feet. And then ultimately, we declared war in 1812. It was the second war of independence, if you would. And so when you read the stanzas, I'm going to tackle this particular stanza. And where is the band that so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country should leave us no more? Okay. If you're reading it at face value, if you're not reading it like the poem that it is, you might be led to think that they're talking about slavery. If you spend your whole life and your entire worldview thinking that everyone is after you and that this nation hates you and that the whole system is systemically racist, you're going to look at this stanza and say, oh, this is talking about slavery. But let's break down this stanza and see what they're talking about. I just read the first three lines of that particular poem. In modern day speak, what they're actually saying is, all you people who thought that you could bring war and kill us and destroy our home and our nation, where are you at now? Where are you at now? That's what those three lines are saying. Where is the band that so vauntingly swore that you can wreak havoc and destroy our people, destroy our land and leave us without a home in the country? Where are you at now? That's what those three lines are saying right there. Okay, the next one. Their blood has washed out their foul steps pollution. Basically, they're all dead. We defeated them. They're defeated. They're so, dead. So therefore, a question was asked and... The answer is the... Yes, the answer right. is the fourth line there. Where are they? They're dead. They're defeated. If not dead, defeated. Or both. Okay? That's the fourth line. And then the next three lines, no refuge... Or the next two lines, no refuge could save the hireling and the slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. The two words that we are hanging on here, I think that we're hanging on here, are hireling and slave, okay? This is where historical context is important. The idea of a slave in this particular stanza, I believe, are the people who are willing to submit to British rule. There is this, I don't know what it is, is it a saying or is it a quote of something where Christian men are distinguished in that they would rather die on their feet than live on their knees. 
This is a country, this is a situation where men had given all of their effort, their lives, some of them their life's blood, many of them their livelihood, in order to fight for a nation that they believed should stand independent of the British Empire. They would much rather fight, they would much rather revolt, they would much rather die than to be subject to the crown any longer. They would rather die than be slaves. That's the mentality there. That's the idea there. That's the context. They knew that if Fort McHenry fell, because remember, a month before this, the Capitol and the White House were on fire. The British had sacked D.C. a month before that. So they knew that if Maryland fell, you know, the nation was pretty much done for. It was only a matter of time, of course, but the nation was pretty much done for. And they knew that. And that's why they held the line. They fought at Fort McHenry to repel the British. Now, I'm not pretending to be a historian. I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast and that are alive on the planet today that know a lot more in-depth history of this nation than I do. But even a cursory search of this historical information will reveal to you that no one was talking about the slaves or anything of that particular nation. If they were speaking of slaves, they were talking about being slaves to the British crown. That's what they were talking about. Hireling is another word. A hireling, you'll remember in scripture, where a hireling is described as someone who's paid to look after the sheep. When the wolf or the bear comes to scatter the sheep, that hireling is not going to give his life for the sheep. He's going to take off and run. It's the shepherd who cares about the sheep. It's people who actually have skin in the game, people who are actually desiring for this nation to surge, who have given all of their all in order for this nation to stand. They're the ones that are going to stand. The hireling is just going to go off and run. They're not going to care about this nation. So Francis Scott Key, in writing this particular stanza, lumps them all together. The slaves are people who are willing to submit to British rule, and the hireling are people who don't care to fight for the country, who are just okay to let it fall into British hands at that particular point. Those people, the stanza says, no refuge could save them. No refuge could save the hireling and the slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. In other words, there is nowhere for you to run. There's nowhere for you to hide. This is a fight for people who are willing to lay down their lives for this new fledgling nation that's, what, 30 years old, 30, 40 years old now, that we are fighting for. Now, those of us on the other side of history looking back at what happened, we can't look at this particular stanza and say, oh, they mentioned the word slave. They must have been talking about the Africans there. Listen, I'm not I'm not demeaning the racial, the absolute sin that slavery was and is in this country. I'm not demeaning that. But at this particular point, I believe they had bigger fish to fry. I'm not, please listen carefully, I'm not making one sin greater than the other. What's the point? If you have bigger fish to fry, the British are coming to obliterate your country. You can talk about freeing the slaves and women's rights and all of these different things if you want. But if you don't have a country, none of that stuff matters because you'll be under the crown anyway. And you will not have any of those things. At least we're fighting for a country where we could at least lay the groundwork to begin to address those things. I think that those of us that are the beneficiaries of all of the battles and the hard-won freedoms, the hard-fought-for freedoms that we are receiving now, I think we kind of look back and just kind of stuff our noses and shrug our shoulders and think, oh, well, why didn't they take care of this? And why didn't they take care of that? And why didn't they do this and this and this and this and this and that? And we're failing to realize what the situation was. It's like worrying about your cat when your hair and your house are on fire. 
put the fire out first, and then you can worry about your cat. It's the same thing here, I think. So when he's talking about hireling and slave, as I mentioned before, he's talking about people who, A, are just willing to throw this new nation away, didn't care about what they were trying to do, what they were trying to accomplish, or B, again, they didn't have any skin in the game. They were just hirelings. They're just paid, okay, it's getting crazy. It's getting real. Okay, I'm out. I don't care. British, you can have it. I'm out. That's what he's talking about. The reason why he said that, again, is because the people, the men that were fighting to keep that flag flying, they were the ones who repelled the British and kept them at bay. At that battle, the Americans had significant casualties. The British only had one. Men died to keep Fort McHenry out of British hands. That's what he's talking about in that particular stanza. All right. You're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We are discussing whether the Star Spangled Banner is racist. We'll be right back. Do you have the desire to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints? Answers in Genesis can help. They provide biblically sound books, CDs, DVDs, homeschooling materials, VBS materials, online courses, digital downloads, and The Answers Magazine, and more. Plus, tickets to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Go to The Answers Bookstore by clicking the link in the description section below, so you too can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in you. All right. So, Jay, we have just looked at their historic context of the verse. And honestly, sometimes poetry is not the easiest thing to interpret. So sometimes you look at poetry, you kind of say, okay, what exactly is it saying? But I do agree with you. It seems to be like a very far-fetched grab to say, just because it mentioned Harling and slave, that it must be talking about African slaves being killed. And Joy Behar was right when she said that Francis Scott Key owned slaves. That's a historical fact. But throughout his life, he was conflicted about the slaves that he owned. Very much like many people were, we tend to look back and think that this is a, this is a black and white issue for us. For them, it wasn't so black and white. It wasn't so black and white because of everything that's entangled within the institution of slavery made it to be for muddy waters. Now, we could look back on it and be absolutist and be, this is what needs to happen and all that. Yes, and we should. There's right, there's wrong. There's black, there's white. There's good, there's evil. I get that. But the practical working out of that is not so black and white. It's not so simple. There are institutions, there are policies, there are cultures, there are families. There are all of these things that are intertwined that need to be ripped out or at least taken apart carefully. You ever tried to like build a deck, like a Jenga building or like a house of cards, where you got to be very careful which Jenga block you pull out or the whole thing comes tumbling down? It's the same thing. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What America stood for and stands for to this day, as written in these founding documents, is something to fight for. It's something to strive for. And it's unfair for people in the 21st century to look back at people in the 18th and 19th century who actually had to fight those battles and say, oh, you didn't do it right. You didn't do this, that, or the other. Instead, we should be looking back and saying, okay, this is what they did. This is what they were able to accomplish. This is what has yet to be accomplished. So let's go about continuing the work 
continuing to strive for those values that we hold as Americans in these founding documents, in this anthem, instead of trying to tear it all down. And that's where I have an issue because everyone that seems to be talking about the nation being systemically racist are never proposing solutions that unite the country. Everything seems to be an effort to tear everything down. It's like wanting to kill the pilot that's flying your plane. You don't like the pilot, I get that. But if you kill the pilot, if you kill the ones flying the plane, how are you going to land the thing? How are you going to fly the thing? You're not a pilot. How are you going to do that? And so there's a lack of grace there. There's a lack of reconciliation. There's Mm -hmm. a lack of that there that really gets under my skin because it's an I hate America. So because I hate America, everything has to be torn down mentality that I think is detrimental to everyone in the nation. I think a big problem here is the rewriting of history. Yes. Is that you look back and you say, okay, you ignore the good that some of these men have done and you focus on the fact that they have done wrong. For instance, it's looking back in scripture and looking at the fact that Joseph was boastful because he had a coat of many colors and his father preferred him over his brothers, but not look at the fact that of all the good he did as well when he was governor of Egypt, or looking back at the fact that David killed Uriah and he did all these things to displease God, right. but then you don't look at the fact of all the good that caused him to be King David that we know today. Right. The list goes on and on because you can look at Lot, who the Bible said that he went to Sodom and Gomorrah. I guess just to wrap it up is a sense that you look at these men and you see the negative and yeah, it's these men own slave and that was despicable and we can say that. Absolutely. But we're going to also look at say, you know what? These men fought for something that they believe in as well to give us the freedom that we enjoy today. We don't have to exalt them because they were men just like we are. They were flesh and blood and we don't have to put them up and pretend like they're all savior or anything, but at the same time, we can give them their props for what they did right surely, and also condemn them for what they did wrong, but we don't have to tear down the system because no one is perfect. Exactly. No one is perfect. So that's the kind of look at it. I think today, we try to rewrite history so much, and I think it was Churchill, Sir Churchill, who said, you know, if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it, and I think that's the big issue here. That's a really good point. MCG, that's a really good point, because if you whitewash history, if you try to erase it, the following generations won't know racism or they won't know wrong when they see it. If they look in their past and everything is peachy keen and everybody has a beautiful face and no one did anything wrong and everything has been whitewashed, if you tear all of that down and you don't present the people for who they were, flaws in everything, the following generation won't be able to learn from that. And that is dangerous. That's what's dangerous. Yeah, I do agree. No one is disputing the fact. And it has been said on this podcast before. If you go back to the episode where we did racial relations at the church, where we had our guest on Pastor Mike, he made it clear, and all of us agree, that the country was born with a birth defect of racism. Yes. But I also believe that we have come a long way, a very long way. And I think this problem still persists for many reasons. Of course, we know that we have a sinful nature, and that's one of the biggest reasons. Sure. The other reason beside that, I honestly believe, is politics and politicians. They have an incentive to keep this going. Mm -hmm. 
So they keep on pushing this thing. It is evident based on what they promote. For instance, January 6th, it was a bad day for the country. January 6th should not have happened. But January 6th is equivalent in my mind to the entire summer of Black Lives Matter. But depends on which side of the aisle you're on. If you're not rational and honest, you want to make January 6th be the worst thing that happened and ignore everything that happened during the summer. Mm -hmm. I condemn January 6th and I condemn Black Lives Matter and, and Altifa and all the things that they did during the summer burning down cities across this country. So I think the biggest thing here is, of course, we know the sinful nature of men's heart, but also I think politics have so much to play in this. So going back, I think that Joy Behar and many of these folks honestly deep down know that the Star Spangled Banner is at racist, but they cannot and will not disagree with their political affiliation. Sure. And that to me is intellectually dishonest. And malicious because they know what it does to the country, what it does to the people, the culture. It rips the fabric apart. Absolutely. So do you think the U.S. should have multiple national anthems based on all this that's going on? We know that the NFL now is singing their so-called black national anthem. Do you think the U.S. should have multiple? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The whole idea of the United States of America is for many people from different ethnicities from different cultures from different backgrounds to unite under certain values under certain principles people don't understand how unique that is in history because even up to this day most countries are ethnically homogenous most of them are not all of them of course but many of them are like in many countries everyone looks the same everyone has similar background, similar history. Of course, that's not to say all of them, but you look at countries, let's take Japan, China, for example, this whole idea of people coming together from all these different types of countries that are not united by any particular ethnicity, not united by any particular culture, not united by any particular history that have come together, but they're united by these values. They're united by these ideals. That's fairly new in history. I'm not saying it's never been done. I'm just saying it's fairly new in history. Many people call the United States the great experiment. They call it that to see if, will that work? Because that's not the norm in history. So this idea that we would have two anthems is completely antithetical to the idea of what America is. In many ways, I'm not even culturally American. Like if you cut me, I will bleed red, white, and blue. But I grew up with a different culture, with different history, with a different language even. And so I understand how important it is to preserve those elements of your being, of your history, of your identity. But if we're going to come together and build this thing called America, which we've been trying to build for the past 200-something years, it's unwise, it's wrong to do so at the expense of the unity of the whole. So that's why I don't think there should be more than one anthem. It completely gets under my skin when I see people kneeling for the anthem or when they're singing two different anthems at these events because it's antithetical to what America is. And I wish that people who felt alienated by the anthem or by what they feel is the founding documents of this nation I am willing to bet if I were a betting woman that they don't fully know the history behind those documents. 
what they do know has been colored by what we're thinking about what they did back then. And that's not a true picture of what historical events actually happened. It's what you said, MCG, where history is being forgotten and they are being taught an alternative historiography. The difference between history and historiography is history is what actually happened. Historiography is what we think happened or when we think about what happened and how we evaluate those particular events. That's why I don't think there should be a second anthem. But many people would say that it's important to have the anthem in our cultural gatherings or in our spiritual gatherings even. Like, for example, there are many churches that sing the national anthem on special days in their church services or in their church gatherings. Do you think that's a good thing to do? What do you think about the anthem in church services? Yeah, so let me address first whether we should have multiple national anthems. I think absolutely not. I would agree with you. National anthems and flags, they are designed to unite people. We don't need any more division in this country. We are already mm-hmm. divided Republican and Democrat, and we are divided black and white, and whether or not you stand with diversity and inclusion and equity. And we shouldn't be falling for all this division because when you talk to people, you realize that, you know what? We are not even that divided as the politicians want to make us feel. Mm-hmm. So should we have multiple nations? Absolutely not. No way. I normally wear the flag of my country of birth on my lapel when I wear a suit. Why? Because I am identifying myself sure. as being from a nation in the Caribbean. Sure. So the flag identifies me. I remember driving down the street in the community I live, on a major street, and I saw someone in their car with a flag of my country on their seat. That identify that person mm-hmm. as being from the country that I'm from. So I did something I normally wouldn't do is I took my window down and I shout out to him and asked him, hey, are you from such and such a place? And he said, yes. And he said, are you? Yes. And we start talking. Where are you from? Where on the island are you from? It's identity. It's identification. We remove that. We say, okay, let's give the blacks their own flag and this stuff. Then at that point, we might as well divide the country and give the blacks their own country and give the whites their own country because what else is going to unite us if the flag and the anthem right. kind of unite us? So I think it's ridiculous for us to say, hey, let's have multiple national anthems. I don't think it helps anybody. I don't think anybody benefits from it except probably for the woke few. But concerning the national anthem in church, I have no problem with it. I think it has a place, and as long as it's done decently and in order and is not taken above and beyond where it should be, so we're not worshiping country, we're not exalting country above God, I have no problem with the anthem being played in church or even church folks being patriotic. And quite honestly, if church folks are not going to be patriotic, who's going to be in this country today? The country, again, is not perfect, but at least I believe this nation was birthed on Christian foundation. I wouldn't call it a Christian nation. I will disagree right. with folks on that. Mm-hmm. But at least he had a Christian underpinning and a Christian foundation. So if Christians are not going to be patriotic, who's going to be? 
So I have no problem with anti-planning church as long as it's in the rightful place. This is where I disagree with you. Okay, let me ask you this. What is the rightful place of the anthem in church services? Because if you ask me, in my opinion, I don't think the anthem has any place in a church service. And I know that might be controversial with some folk. I still love you. We're all brethren. But I personally don't think that it has any place in the church. So, But you said that in its rightful place. So what would be its rightful place when you say that? What does that mean? Well, I have no problem with traditions as long as the tradition is not anti-biblical. So therefore, July 4th, you want to celebrate the independence of the country. I have no problem with the national anthem being sung. September 11th, Patriotic Day. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with it. You talk about Memorial Day. I have no problem with it. As long as it is in the rightful place, the country is celebrating a national holiday. The anthem is in the rightful place. There, it is song. We move on. Of course, again, we don't want to exalt it and make it like we go to church to worship country. Mm -hmm. And how far from we take it before we exalt it? Maybe I can't give a concrete definition, but I believe I will recognize it when I see it. But I have no problem if a church is celebrating the independence of the country that the church is in or they celebrate some kind of national holiday and they have the flag and they have the anthem being sung. I think it can be done decently, it can be done in order, and it can be done tastefully without making it seem like we're going to church to worship the flag and the country. So for me, the rightful place would be, you want to deck that church out in red, white, and blue on Independence Day? By all means, I'm with that. You want people to be wearing red, white, and blue on that day? By all means, I'm with that. But when we start singing these patriotic songs, I think it takes the spotlight away from the one on whom the spotlight should be. We unite on Sunday to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to honor him, to lift him up high, to exalt him for his attributes to compare ourselves to him and repent where we need repenting and to glorify him where he's done the work of bringing about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and to uplift each other in the Word, encourage each other in our Christian walk. It's purely a Christian thing. Christ did not come to unite people under the star-spangled banner. Christ came to unite people under his banner, under him, his banner his banner over me is love, the song says. And so for me, when the church services or when the church takes on too patriotic a flair, we risk alienating people who, you know, for many reasons don't necessarily identify with the Star Spangled Banner, although they do to some extent because they're in the country, of course. But let's say, for example, someone who has just immigrated from, I don't know, from anywhere, you know, it does... I think the focus is on the wrong banner. Let's just put it that way. I've heard preachers say from the pulpit that this is the greatest nation in the world. And if you don't like it, you can go back to where you came from. From the pulpit? From the pulpit? What in the world are you talking about? That's not appropriate. That's an elevation of something that ought not to be elevated. We ought to be elevating Christ. And so I think that there was a church down in Texas. They had their choir stand up and sing, Make America Great Again. And the premise of the song, of course, was to Make America great again so that if we all turn back to Christ and if the nation repents, the nation can be great again. 
which that's true. But when you sing that, and the president at the time was Trump, that is purely overtly political. That is inappropriate. It shouldn't have been done. And I think that perhaps they're focusing on the wrong thing at that particular point. So in my opinion, if you want to deck the place out in flags and flowers and all of that sort of thing, that's great. But to elevate it to the point where the impression is given that it's more important than Christ and Christ is being compared to these things as though he were comparable to these things, as though these things were comparable to him. I think that's where perhaps the line is for me, and I don't particularly like it. Yeah, but patriotism and politics or being political is two different things. Because I can say that deck the church out with all red, white, and blue can be off-putting, just like the national anthem to some folks might be off-putting. Okay. But at the same time, I think if you respect the country to which you're going, because I can speak as an immigrant to this country, I came to this country and I went to a college that was very patriotic. And some of it was, in my opinion, out of ignorance. And some of it was just because they were happy and grateful to be Americans. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I experienced is that, at least at that college, a lot of folks were surprised that. I was patriotic to my country. And I'm like, why? As though patriotism only existed in the US. Right. So it was like, <laughs> why shouldn't I be patriotic to my country? Sure. I'm in your country and I'll be respectful of your country. I'll be respectful of the anti, respectful of the flag. Sure. But at the same time, I'm very patriotic to my country. Mm -hmm. And at the time when I wasn't a citizen, that was where my allegiance lie. So I can see. I can see what you're saying there about the colors and everything. Because if I walked into a church and it was decked in like red and yellow, I'd be like, what in the world? <laughs> you know what I mean? If yeah, it looked but, like the Chinese flag, I'd have an issue. But, but I get what you're saying. But at the yeah. same time, you know, that church in Texas, I think that wasn't necessarily patriotism. That was being political. Okay. And I wouldn't advise any church to take a political slogan and put it to a song, even if the message of the song may be true. Because you create barriers to others, to people see, because if the title of the song is Make America Great Again, who's going to listen to it? Mm -hmm. Only folks that agree that mm -hmm. with Trump's slogan. I'm yeah, not, only MAGA country will listen to that. I'm not saying that the slogan was necessarily wrong or right. I'm just simply saying that if Make America Great Again slogan is offensive to somebody, why would they listen to that song? So I think the church kind of took it a little bit too far. And that's why I say it has its place when it's done decently and in order. You know, if my church had done that, I would have an issue with it. I would have probably gone to the pastor or the music director and asked about it because sure. I don't think that it has its place. I, quite honestly, I don't think Christians should be exalting any politicians. Mm -hmm. I don't like it personally when I see politicians going to churches and making speeches on the Sunday morning or whatever and stuff like that. And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. No, I don't think that's appropriate. But that's completely a different thing than to be grateful and thankful to God for the country that you live in and the country where you were born. I think that has its place yeah. and it can be done decently in order. And, and we should be grateful. I mean, anyone should say of their country, this is the greatest country in the world. Absolutely. There is not a country on this planet I'd rather be living on right now than my blessed America. So I understand that. But I agree with what you're saying. I, I see what you're saying in terms of how that might be interpreted as crossing the line, the patriotism, the decking out and all of that. If the line is that razor thin, I guess the question is, do we do away with it altogether in the church? You know, I wouldn't say so, but I guess their flag anthems 
is designed to unify you and it's also designed to identify you. Right. I can say I have multiple identities, but the most important of my identity is my identity in Christ. Christ. I can talk about my identity as a husband. I can talk about my identity as a father. I can talk about the identity of the two countries that I am a citizen of. But at the same time, if my identity in Christ is not exalted above all those, then there's a problem. Ultimately, and the most important identity I have is that my identity is found in Christ. So, Jay, let's wrap it up and tell me, as we talk about it, we talk about the purpose of the national anthem as being something that brings unity to people and stuff like that. How can we take this conversation and point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ? When someone becomes a Christian, there are certain things, there are certain sins that just immediately fall off. And then there are others that you go through your life turning from. We call this the process of sanctification. It's the same thing, I think, with any nation or fledgling nation. Our nation is no longer fledgling. But I mean, compared to many other countries, we're still a very young country, only 200 years or so, 200 plus years. This idea of grace, of forbearance, of working it out, not seeking to destroy it and just throw it out, but seeking to work it out to untangle all of these, like Pastor Mike said, the effects of this birth defect that this country has been established with. There's value in that. We know that's valuable. We see it in Christian lens. God, in his righteousness, in his holiness, could have tossed mankind into hell and made no provision for redemption, no provision for a chance to even be made right with him because we were in the wrong. We're the ones that sinned against him. We're the ones that violated all of the beauty that he created and everything the Bible says it was good when he created it. We came along and did what we wanted to do and ruined everything. He could have, he would have been righteous in doing so, completely obliterating us and starting over if he wanted to. But he had mercy. He had patience. He had forbearance. He had mercy. He had grace. And that's an example that he set for all of us to follow. That grace and that mercy is available to anyone who will turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in him. That's incredibly benevolent because he doesn't have to do that. But he bound himself to that rule, as it were. I can't think of a better word. But he himself, he put the restriction on himself that he will count you as righteous. He will treat you as though you have never sinned if you have turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can do that because he's the author of this entire creation that we're living in right now. He has the authority and he has the power and the right to do that. And that is incredibly, I mean, that's great news for us. The possibility that we can be made right with the Holy God when we're the ones that messed everything up. We're the ones that keep thumbing our noses at him and beating our chests and vaunting ourselves at him. And he's the one who's merciful and benevolent toward us. That is a great mercy. That is a great grace that he extends to anyone who will turn from their sin and believe on him. 
But if you continue in your sin, if you continue in your way, in his justice, in his holiness, he will exact that punishment that we so richly deserve, and that's eternal separation from him. One of the things that we can point to is the same thing that's happening, these people who are, there's no reconciliation, no repentance, no forgiveness. You did this wrong, so we got to tear all this down, and da 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 That's completely antithetical to the example of Christ, to the example that God has given us through his word, in his actions, and everything that he's done. And so if you're listening and you think that you've been wronged by this so-called systemically racist nation, which it isn't, consider this possibility. Is it possible that whatever ill, whatever wrong, or whatever tragedy befalls you, that's the very least that you deserve? That's the very least that any of us deserve? when we have thumbed our noses at a holy God and we've deliberately separated ourselves from him and now we want to play victim and cry and complain when bad things happen. Well, we've separated ourselves from the source of love, the source of good. God is love, the Bible says. God is light. God is good. When we willfully separate ourselves from him, all we can expect is a life of sin and brokenness and sadness and misery and darkness and hopelessness and despair. That's a given. But we don't have to walk in that darkness. We don't have to continue in that realm of hopelessness and despair. We don't have to continually thumb our noses at God because he's merciful and benevolent and willing to save and willing to pull you out of there. If you will let go of that sin, if you will acknowledge what Jesus Christ did on the cross to pay for your sin, he had to die to pay for that sin. And for us to continue in our rebellion, we will get exactly what we've got coming, exactly what we deserve. And it will be none of God's fault. It will be all of our fault because we refuse to receive Christ, refuse to receive his very merciful intervention in dying on the cross to pay for our sins, to be made right with the holy God. So while we're thinking about whether or not we can reconcile as a nation, think about the bigger picture and think about our place in it and see the parallels. Turn from your sin and believe on the Savior today. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us, to support this podcast, or to learn more about Removing Barriers, go to removingbarriers.net. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.